Our first reading comes to us from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, rejoice, for His love is strong, and His mercies never-ending. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, rejoice, for His love is strong, and His mercies never-ending. All I have needed have provided great is your faithfulness oh lord your mercy is new every morning great is your faithfulness that all the people sing praise the lord oh my soul rejoice for his love and His mercies are never-ending praise. The Lord, oh my soul, rejoice for His love is strong and His mercies are never-ending. From the beginning You have been with me. Great is Your faithfulness. downcast your love is steadfast great is your faithfulness and all the people sing praise the Lord oh my soul rejoice for his love is strong and his mercies never ending praise the Lord oh my soul rejoice for Oh 
Lord God Almighty, my soul will bless your name. Holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, your word.
Lord, I trust in you. Help me trust you more. For your grace is deep and your love is sure. Even in the valley dark, all my hopes restored. Lord, I trust in you. Help me trust you more. All your goodness, all your mercy will follow me all of my days. And I will worship in your house, oh Lord, for you are always good all your goodness all your mercy will follow me all of my days and I will worship in your house oh Lord for you are good you're always good Lord, I trust in you, help me trust you more, for your grace is deep, and your love is sure, even in the valley dark, all my hopes restored, Lord, I trust in you, help me trust you more, Lord, I trust in you, help me trust you more. Lord, I trust in you, help me trust you more. Our second reading comes to us from the book of Psalms, Psalm 95. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and raise a loud shout to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the caverns of the earth and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands have molded the dry land. Come, let us bow down and bend the knee and kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice. Harden not your hearts as your forebears did in the wilderness at Meribah and on that day at Massa when they tempted me. They put me to the test, though they had seen my works. Forty years long I detested that generation and said, This people are wayward in their hearts. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. This is the word of the Lord. 
your presence be enough when I'm fearful, when I'm doubting. May I have the strength to trust. You're the first, you're the last, you're forever. You're the one who brings spring out of winter. You're the promise and you are the keeper. You're the one who holds all things together. Together, together. You're the one who holds all things together. In my my sorrow may your goodness steady me when I'm blinded when I'm hopeless may I have the eyes to see you're the first you're the last you're forever you're the one who brings spring out of winter. You're the promise and you are the keeper. You're the one who holds all things together. Together, together. You're the one who holds all things together. In my serving. When I'm hidden, I will trust the Father sees. When you call me, I will listen. I will follow where you lead. I will follow. You're the one who brings spring out of winter. You're the promise and you are the keeper. You're the one who holds all things together. You're the first, you're the last, you're forever. You're the one who brings spring out of winter. You're the promise and you are the keeper. You're the one trust in you I will trust in you Jesus you hold all things together our lives are in your hands to 
teach us to trust you, teach us to trust in you. Give us grace, give us grace to trust in you. Our third reading comes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 5 through 26. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am He, the one who is speaking to you. This is the word of the Lord. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Brown, the parish pastor at Trinity Indicator. Um, I hope this finds you well. I hope you're healthy as you listen to this. We're having to cancel our services at Trinity for the next couple of weeks as we, out of an abundance of caution and out of love for our neighbors, have decided to follow what many organizations and churches and schools around the whole country are doing and and creating space and distance between us in, in an effort to try to curb the spread of the coronavirus. And so it's, uh, it's with, it's under some strange circumstances that, that this sermon comes to you today. We are living in some really strange days. I don't think that any of us have been through days quite like this. 
Um, probably not too many of us remember the Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, there is a, a couple things I just want to say about where we find ourselves, and then I'm going to do a little bit of Bible study with y'all based on our text for the week. And um, yeah, first of all, I want to just restate what Chris said in the letter that went out to everyone. Uh, Chris is our lead pastor at Trinity. He's uh, also the pastor on the west side, like I'm here on the east side. And um, the the thing that drove us to this decision was was not fear. It it really was an an abundance of love uh, for our neighbor, just recognizing that we have the opportunity to be mindful of the way that we can inadvertently uh, actually harm the weakest, most vulnerable among us. And uh, I know none of us desire to to be vector points for spreading something that could end up um, actually really harming someone else. And so we are listening to experts and choosing to keep space uh, and to make it so that we can um, sort of hopefully let this thing settle down a little bit and let the curve, uh, as they say, flatten out. Um, I heard a pastor say this week in describing where we find ourselves that the, the thing that's kind of unique about what we're experiencing is that this there's a what he called ambient anxiety. And what that means is that there's, rather than this being sort of direct and confrontational, like an attack, you know, uh, like, a, like an attack on uh, like being mugged or even like personally getting sick, that rather than that being the lived reality for most of us, the vast majority of us, at least at this point, um, there's a thing that's kind of all around us right now, and we can't quite wrap our arms or our minds uh, around what it means for us. And we hear things from all over the world, and it's hard to know what they mean for us. And you know, if, you, if any of us probably know a person who has actually contracted the coronavirus, uh, other than perhaps some celebrities, and, and yet this thing has found its way into all of our lived experience currently, uh, like, like oxygen all around us. It has, um, it has moved into the neighborhood and led to all kinds of just general fearfulness among us. Um, probably some of us have found ourselves this week making emotional purchases at the store, stockpiling things that we don't even think we need, giving into a scarcity mindset out of fear. Um, others of us are responding to it in, in a wholly different way, kind of just adopting a posture of indifference or a, sort of a cavalier apathy towards the whole thing, trying to chalk up the this whole thing to, you know, imagined media hysteria or partisan politics or whatever it is. And um, what's clear, though, is is that the the moment that we're living in, we uh, we haven't we haven't been here before. Um, even as I give the sermon, it's it's Friday morning. I'm sitting in the east side in, in an empty sanctuary, and uh, I very much wish that I was able to look you in the eyes as I said these things. I wish that we could be in a room together. There's something about how isolating this is that makes it even worse. You know that we don't even get to sort of ride this out in each other's company, but that there's uh, something about this that is driving us into um, into isolation. And probably uh, some of us, maybe even many, are going to experience um, 
not just boredom in the coming weeks, but, but loneliness, um, depression, because we're going through this very large thing as a society and we're doing it, uh, largely out of touch with people literally being told not to touch other people. And, and it's changing so rapidly that it, it kind of keeps us on edge. Um, I mean, who knows between now and 48 hours from now when this shows up in your inbox, what will have transpired or what will have changed? Everything is moving so quickly and all of these things just can make it really easy for our hearts to be anxious and for us to experience this, um, as, as fear. And then there's all the, the costs to this, the really personal disruption to it, the economic realities and all the small businesses, the hourly employees in our church and in our communities, uh, the school closures and empty grocery stores. And these are things that we're all thinking about. We're all mindful of. Um, there's our awareness of how this is impacting people well outside of our sphere. Um, ch- children who depend on school lunch and school breakfast and sometimes school dinner in order to get food every day and now have no access to food for a while. And we're having to figure out what to do about that as a society and um, parents who can't afford to take work off and yet whose young kids are now at home and the millions of people who are going to experience significant financial setbacks and pressures because of this and, and the many who are even going to lose their jobs uh, over this. And we um, we haven't been here before. Uh, this is this is something this feels like something new and it's not clear how this is going to go or how long it's going to go and so i just want to say at the beginning like if you're if you're feeling anxious right now like you're not alone and all of us are i think trying to hold to a posture of peacefulness and and boldness and confidence and and yet if you're if you're finding it hard to to be in that space that's that's okay um, this is a this is unlike something we've done before together. One of the things that this disease has highlighted is how intimately connected we all are as human beings, and that the things that happen in other countries directly affect me that in a sense we're all. Um, a part of the same root system and that artificial lines drawn on maps that create borders and boundaries that separate us by culture and language and nationality are, are in the end, they're, um, they're really not that important that our world is going through a thing right now. Um, as I heard someone say, there is, there are two things happening simultaneously. There is a disease and it's spreading and then there is the dis-ease that is already covering the map. This dis-ease around, um, is this going to be okay? And um, is everyone I love going to be all right? And, and we don't know the answers to those questions. And anyone who tells you that they do doesn't. Um, what we know is that we're facing something that people who have a lot more knowledge than me have uh, some real clear and sober thinking about that they're calling us to be cautious and and wise. And one of the things to note is that the church has throughout her history has has always managed to shine in in moments like this, regardless of where they happen uh, on the globe. 
And that's because the church has always understood herself to be the brokers of a better story, um, of a better future. And not, not a story that disregards the current reality we're living in, but that understands that we find ourselves um, a part of a greater, grander arc that is moving over and above and also through the things that are happening around us right now, which gives us something to hold on to um, in the midst of seasons of uncertainty and fear. Um, because of that, the Bible can say just really unapologetically um, again and again that anxiousness doesn't need to have a place in our in our bodies, in our hearts. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, I, I want you to be free of all anxiety. And just think about what that would uh, feel like um, right now to just be free of all anxiety. He didn't come up with this idea. Jesus said it first in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will wear or eat or drink. Um, For people that do not know the living God, they worry about things like that. And your father knows what you need. Your father knows what you need. In other words, one of the things that Jesus understood and tried to give to his disciples is this idea that there are resources, there are emotional and spiritual and psychological uh, resources, and then through the church, material resources that should make fear a thing that we can put in its place and not a thing that we let rule the day. Our text today actually, I think, speaks to some of those resources. Uh, We are at Trinity, as you know, a a church that bases most of our Sunday sermons on whatever the prescribed lectionary text is for that week. And, And this week, the lectionary gives us the gift of putting us in a text in Romans 5 that maybe on first uh, first pass may feel irrelevant to where we find ourselves today, and yet as I've sat in it, I feel really confident that it's, um, it's, it answers actually some of the questions we're asking. It's deeply needed and necessary for where we find ourselves at this time. So let me read to you the text. It's, it's Romans 5, 1 to 11, and this is what the Apostle Paul writes. Therefore, since we are justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, to be sure, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am, I'm sure that it can feel like a real miss um, for some to, to have such a theological text in the midst of the coronavirus. And, and yet I think it's just good to remember uh, that this text sort of forces us to remember that the way that you and I think theologically, um, or to put it maybe uh, more simply, the way that you and I, the story that you and I understand ourselves to be in, that it, it really does shape how we respond to what's going on around us. When we talk about theology or a guiding philosophy or a narrative understanding of ourselves, we are, these are all really similar ways of describing what is the large worldview or framework that makes sense of what I'm feeling, of what I'm desiring, of what is happening and how I respond to it. So like, for example, if I have an understanding of myself that is primarily that my, my life, uh, the 70, 80 years, whatever I have, um, that these are my opportunity to experience uh, abundance and flourishing, um, and uh, that that's just kind of it, then it's going to automatically mean that I'm going to run from suffering, it's going to mean that I'm going to uh, I'm going to be less inclined to to stay in things that are hard, um, whether those be uh, jobs that aren't particularly satisfying uh, or relationships that get really hard or tedious, uh, commitments that I make that then I actually later want to back out of because uh, it turns out that the the price tag is actually higher than I thought it was going to be, um, and and that all is coming from a self understanding. Uh, a theology, uh, a story that is is putting a lot of emphasis and understanding on uh, on immediate experiences, on on what I'm having, what's going on right now. Which is just to just to say that, like as we think about the things Paul is talking about in this text, we we really are actually talking about things that can can affect um, not just our self understanding on a sort of on a grandiose level, but in in the minutia of of right now. Of, of coronavirus, you know, quarantine. There's really kind of one main thing I want to say about th- this text, and I'm going to say um, a couple of things first to, to get us to that big idea that I think can help uh, us during this, this season. Uh, first is this word that Paul says at the very beginning. He says, therefore, since we have been justified um, by faith, now... Um, Justified is like we said last week. It's a it's a word that's closely related to the word for righteousness, and so um, both in Hebrew and in Greek. And so the things that that the, the biblical writers are trying to convey to you and me about um, about righteousness are related to what they're trying to convey about justification. And um, and and as we said last week, the the big the big principled idea behind all of this is this idea of of inclusion into God's family of belonging. Of welcome, of acceptance, and that um, that when we talk about these things, we're talking about uh, relational dynamics, not merely legal dynamics. 
Uh, and yet, uh, and yet, the word justification clearly uh, has legal overtones to it. It, it is communicating a forensic or a, a, a judicial, juridical idea. And it's important to understand that that sort of maybe the the undergirding or uh, one of the components of our right relationship with God, that sense of rightness, that sense of belonging, of, of being in the inner circle, that it is it is uh, reinforced by this forensic uh, reality, the doctrine of justification by faith is the idea that. What makes me right with God is not anything that I do, but it is entirely what God has done through Jesus Christ for me. And so when we say by faith, again, that's this, that's us saying, uh, this is something that I, I can choose to accept and receive and put myself in that and believe that, uh, or not. But, uh, the degree to which I receive it and believe it, that I accept it in faith, um, to that degree, I am experiencing the realities of my right standing with God, of being, uh, righteous or being justified. Um, Martin Luther famously said that the doctrine of justification by faith is one of the articles by which the church will either stand or fall. Um, it is exceedingly important, and it is what distinguishes Christian teaching from any sort of religious teaching that would emphasize some effort to earn acceptance or earn God's favor or a way around the table or into the inner circle. Rather, everything is a gift. Everything has been given. Nothing can be purchased. It's already been paid for uh, fully. And yet one of the really cool nuances uh, of the word justification is that what it communicates to you and me and what Paul wants you and me to understand is that justification is not merely forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is is this idea of pardon that I've done something wrong and everyone knows it, but it's been it's been let go. But justification isn't communicating pardon; it's communicating that the courts have ruled in my favor, um, that something has happened towards you and me now that is just. Now that that is a huge deal. Um, uh, this is why we we read in in First John uh, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us, but he's also just to forgive us and to cleanse us. In other words, God is, because of Jesus and what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection, God is doing what is right and fair and uh, not, not just merciful, but what is required towards us. That what justification says to you and me is that we are not simply pardoned criminals, but we are people who are being treated and receiving things that would only be just if we were perfect. That you and I are being treated as and welcomed as people who not only are are, 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 you know, people who've been given some kind of clemency uh, from the court, but have actually been found to be without fault. And that is because of how complete and total and absolute what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross is. 
um, which is which is huge. It's a huge thing of self-understanding that we don't have to come to God groveling, but this is why the New Testament says we come con- with confidence. We don't have to come uh, before God panicked. We don't have to live in a panic posture. And, and I just know so many of us are prone to, because I've been around Christians for my whole life, so many of us are prone to feel like God is all, his opinion of us is always informed by the last thing we did. That we are in, in some ways never, never more than our last mistake. Or that for some of us, that there are certain things that we've done that we will never recover from, that they will always be the thing that essentially God wants to talk about with us. And that is not true. That is not what it means to be justified. What it means for you and me to be justified is that we have been, that we have been completely set free of not just like the reminder of what is done, but, but like the reality of it. That God has chosen to move towards us in a way that it would only be just for him to move towards his son because Christ, um, has accomplished that for us. And because of that, Paul naturally goes into this next word through there. Therefore, through Jesus, we have access. Uh, access is, is what it sounds like. It's the opportunity of, of being welcomed into a space that, that maybe you other, and I otherwise wouldn't be welcomed into or wouldn't have a place in. We have access now to God in a way that is, that can be bold and confident and, and, and not, not proud. Um, uh, and yet we can have the confidence of children. Um, one of the things that uh, I've heard a pastor from New York City, Tim Keller, say many times that I just really love and resonates deeply with me is he says that Jesus, Jesus paints a picture of God our Father in which we are invited, uh, even called and compelled, to wake him up in the middle of the night, essentially to get us a cup of water. That that's the sort of, that's the sort of, Abba, that's the sort of father that Jesus uh, portrays to you and me, that we are invited to wake God up in the middle of the night to get us like a cup, cup of water. And, and Keller goes on to say, what kind of person has access to the king at three in the morning? Only his child. And that what access you and I have been granted is the access of a child to a parent, which uh, if you uh, have kids or <laughs> even if you remember being a kid, um, you know that what that means is that you have access that no one else does. Um, God is um, close to us. We have access to him. I think especially at times like this, he's right here. And as you feel alone or isolated or, or confused or anxious, just remember, like, in the, God is right here right now. He is right. He's with you right now. He's in... Um, the room. Now, to the main thing that I want to pull from this text, Paul says, therefore, because of these things, what we do boast in, it's not our works. We boast in our sufferings. We boast in our sufferings. And that feels particularly uh, poignant, maybe at this, at this day. Now, I want to talk, with that, talk about what that isn't. Boasting in our sufferings and um, again, just uh, I want to thank Tim Keller for helping me with this. <laughs> um, we didn't personally talk. I, he just gave us a sermon years ago. And I think that this was a really helpful distinction. Um, he, he, he talked about how boasting in our sufferings is, is neither stoicism nor is it masochism. And that, those are really important distinctions. It's not stoicism in the sense that like we do not boast in spite of our sufferings. You know, we don't uh, muscle through hardship. We don't pretend it doesn't bother us. Uh, that is 
not what Christian boasting and suffering is, uh, pretending this doesn't bother us. The problem with Stoicism is that it is uh, either just sort of flat denial, this doesn't bother us, um, but actually even, I think, more insidious or more dangerous, uh, Stoicism actually trains us to cut the nerve uh, of the thing that hurts. And that doesn't mean that we necessarily cut the hurtful things out of our lives. It means that we, you can over time, and probably some of you have even done this, uh, um, you can over time actually um, deaden yourself to the pain of something that is going on or something that has happened to you as a way of surviving it, as a way of floating above the surface of it, mostly because pain is so painful and we don't want to feel it. Um, things that are uncertain and scary, um, that stir anxiousness in us are, are, those are feelings we want to run away from. And so whether it's through temporary measures like, uh, eating too much or, or drowning ourselves in, in media or, or drinking too much or whatever, whatever thing it might be, um, over the course of a lifetime, over the course of many years of habit and practice, we can actually end up deadening within ourselves, um, our, our feelers. And so we, we can become um, people who no longer have uh, an emotional awareness of the hurt that is even going around us, which is, I'll just say, not, 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 a, not held up to us by the scriptures in any way as being ideal or something to attain to. Um, uh, Jesus was a deeply emotional person. Paul was a deeply emotional person, a person who felt great grief and could express it openly. There is nothing uh, Christian about about being detached from our, our, our feelings, from our pain. Um, so uh, boasting in our sufferings is not boasting in spite of them. And um, if, if when we if we do end up cutting off the pain or cutting off our nerves um, to pain, all that happens is we become harsh people. We become critical people, people that uh, that 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 people in pain will not come to, because they they don't they don't want to have you know they don't they don't want to hear someone just you know try to minimize their problems or say it doesn't really matter or say that their problems are small in comparison to others. That's not particularly helpful or or good or kind. Um, so it's not stoicism, it's also, but it's also not masochism, which both Christians can tend towards both of these things. And masochism is that we boast because of our sufferings. And, and some of us, even by our personality, are more predisposed to this, to think that like, oh, good, good bad things are happening to me, and that's a good thing. <laughs> Great, I'm, bad things are good. Um, Christians are not masochistic. Um, Christians are not meant to find their identity in their suffering. Um, if you happen to be predisposed to just in, um, to sort of uh, find a, a sense of identity and self in hardship, that's not the same thing as boasting in our sufferings. Um, you know, to say like uh, because I because I suffer because I, I know that I'm a real person or I have deep problems and therefore I'm a complicated person. I'm interesting, and that's that's not what Paul is meaning at all. Uh, he, he, he means boasting in our sufferings. He means a couple of things, uh, I believe. One, uh, boasting in our sufferings, I, I believe, is communicating that one of the things that Christians do really well is that we are able to experience suffering, that we are able to be in suffering, um, like in the inside of it, and not afraid of it. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't uh, uh, 
It, it doesn't mean that we don't experience grief, uh, it, 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 but rather that, as Paul says in another place, he says, we are cast down, but we are not destroyed. We are cast down, but we are not destroyed. And so what happens in um, a Christian, and I've noticed this in my own life, and I've seen it in so many people's lives over the course uh, of, of just years of ministry, that as a person becomes more in touch uh, with God as a person, be, as a person becomes a Christian, that one of the things that happens is that they begin to experience uh, pain more deeply, uh, that they're less afraid of it, that they're more able to enter into the pain of people around us, um, that they cry in ways that they never did before, that things get opened up within them because they're able to handle it. Um, the gospel moves us to be more touched by grief than we were before because you have a larger bucket to hold it in. Um, you have, you have something more solid. Um, when again, the story you're living in, the, the, the narrative understanding, the theology that is guiding you, the, the, these things inform how we respond to circumstances. And when the story that I'm living in is a very short sighted and narrow 75, 85 year long story. Um, when the, the, when all that I have to hold on to is sort of what I'm achieving or accomplishing or what people think about me and these are the loudest things in my life, um, I'm not able to, to go to the bottom of sadness. I, I, I will do, I will fight like crazy to avoid it. It's, it, it's, I, I will not get to the bottom of my story and, and things that happened to me. Um, because I'm afraid that they will eat me alive and destroy me. But a Christian, because we live uh, with this larger, greater, higher arc that goes over and above and through the things that we are experiencing, um, we're able to kind of go all the way in and, and to feel the fear and to feel the pain with people and to be unafraid that it's going to crush us because we know that actually there's a greater thing than, than that pain, than that loss. Um, and what's more, when he says we boast, what he's, what he's, what he's describing is that we're able to to not only feel things deeply, but something happens uh, in the heart of a Christian when they experience pain. And I, I don't know how to describe this except to, um, I know it's real because I've experienced it, that there's something about suffering and pain that in that not only enlarges my heart to to the pain, but also like um, enlarges my heart to joy. And some of the strangest happiness I've known in my life has been in the midst of real pain. Uh, some of the closeness, the deepest closeness I felt to God uh, and to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit throughout my life has been um, when I have been in the darkest spaces. Um, and there's something about that, to, to I, as Paul says, to boast in, or uh, another way of translating that word would be to, to, to rejoice in. That we rejoice in our sufferings, not because of our sufferings, not in spite of our sufferings, but what our sufferings do is they actually grow within us a joy, um, a happiness, a praise, a thanksgiving um, that is strange and mysterious and yet totally available uh, to us, uh, totally available to us. Um, as Paul says, because what these things are doing in us is they're growing in us endurance, which is forging in us character. The way the Greeks understood character was um, character is not just a decision you make one day. Character is what has been etched into you. 
um, the actual, it's related to the idea of etching into marble, a, a permanent, deep change. That's what your character is. And what suffering does, what suffering and hardship do, is they grow our endurance. And out of that, our character is formed. Um, and then out of our character comes hope. I want to say something briefly about endurance. Um, this this season, coronavirus season, finds us in the middle of Lent. And Lent is a, a, a 40-day season of fasting and prayer. And a number of you, like myself and uh, like our pastors at our church, have decided to take this season and to abstain from certain things that we typically run to in the midst of anxiousness or just for pleasure, just because we enjoy them. And we've decided to remove them. Um, if you're like me, um, disruptions like what we're experiencing right now cause me to want to go back on some of those commitments I made on Ash Wednesday. Um, those things that I said before the Lord, I'm going to give these things up. They make me want to create allowances for myself. And I just want to say, like, again, the, the Lenten fasting is not a law. It's not a rule. It's not a, it's not a, a thing that at the end we turn in report cards on ourselves or that we... Um, it's not a, it's not a, 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 a source of pride in us, but, but there is probably a goodness, especially if you're one of those people like me who tends to try to find loopholes and create allowances for yourself. There probably is a goodness. There's probably a goodness in practicing endurance during this time at home and not using it as an opportunity to go back that those are the sorts of decisions, those sorts of decisions over the course of a lifetime end up forging in us, etching in us the kind of people we are, what our character is. And the reason that this is so important is because what our character is, what is etched in us is ultimately going to be what informs our hope. Paul says, our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And and what that means is that the actual experience of God's tenderness, of his generous spirit towards us, of his fatherly affection, um, of how crazy he is about you and me, that the experience of that and the reality of it is available to us and is currently living within us through the presence of God, which is the Holy Spirit. And that one of the things that Paul seems to understand is that when you and I go through suffering, that we are um, more likely to experience some of the gravity and some of the depth and some of the breadth of that love. A love that moved towards us when we were not moving towards uh, God. A love that chose us when we were not choosing and never would have chosen God. And that's why Paul says, you know, uh, it's, it's an extraordinary thing, this gospel. For one would scarcely die even for a good person. Though perhaps for a good person, someone might even dare to give their life as a substitute for. Take me instead. 
Maybe, he says, we live in a world where even for, for a good person that might be available. But God wanted you and me to know that the depth of his love is far greater than just um, extreme acts of goodness. But that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God demonstrates his own love for us. As Eugene Peterson translates in the message, God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in a sacrificial death while we were of no use whatsoever to him. That God chose to move towards us when it didn't benefit him in any way. And that is the larger narrative arc. That that is that is where you and I live. Wow. That the the hard things that we're going through and that we will go through in the coming days are are wrapped up in a love story that shouts louder than anything else. That in the end of the story, the end of the story is love. The end of suffering is love. The end of loneliness is embrace. That what God offers to you and me today through the Holy Spirit, that you and I can to the degree that we believe it and receive it and let it move in us, we can turn around and pour it uh, out for those around us. We're going to be around a lot of uh, a lot of fear and anxiousness for a while. We're going to have an opportunity as the church, as Christians, as people who understand ourselves in a larger story. We're going to have an opportunity to again and again be faithful, to be to endure um, through this as brokers of a better story, as practitioners of a better love. Um, I want to close by reading a prayer that comes from the Book of Common Prayer. um, It is a prayer that is meant to be prayed during times of distress. Increase, O God, the spirit of neighborliness among us, that in peril we may uphold one another, in suffering we may tend to one another, and in homelessness, loneliness, or exile, we may befriend one another. Grant us brave and enduring hearts that we may strengthen one another until the disciplines and testing of these days are ended. And you again give peace in our time. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Bless you all. I look forward to seeing you very soon. You are loved. God, that is who you are. You 
are, way maker, miracle work, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, you are here, touching every heart, I worship you, I worship you, you are here, healing every heart, I worship you, I worship you, you are here, turning lives around, I worship you, I worship you, you are here, mending every heart, I worship you, I worship you, you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, that is who you are, that is who you are, that is who you are. Even when I don't see it, you're working, even when I don't feel it, you're working, you never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working Even when I don't see it, you're working Even when I don't feel it, you're working You never stop, you never stop working You never stop, you never stop working Even when I don't see it, you're working Even when I don't feel it, you're working You never stop, you never stop working never stop, you never stop working, even when I don't see it, you're working, even when I don't feel it, you're working, you never stop, you never stop working, you never stop, cause you are, way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, you are, Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, 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 oh, it's who you 